Well, greetings and grace to you, church family. Wonderful to be with you. Wonderful time of worship through song. Thank you, team, as always. You bless us so immensely. Well, I want to come with a sermon this morning that's kind of outside the box. I haven't ever given a sermon the very next Lord's Day after impact that is a follow-on from the theme of the conference itself, but I want to do that for you today. And yet, I understand full well that quite a number of you were busy serving all weekend, and as a result, you weren't yet able, perhaps, to catch all of the sermons, and also that a number of you made use, perhaps, of the long weekend to head away. But I do want to say thank you once again to those of you who worked so hard to bless the church around New Zealand. The conference truly was immense. It was a deep work of the Spirit of God, as best that we can tell, that's occurring in the lives and hearts of those who attended. Such was the response. And so I want to encourage you today, if you have not yet already done so, to go online and listen to those remarkable messages and seminars and Q&As from the very beginning of the long weekend on Friday through to the end of it on Monday. It really was something very special. And I know we say this every time after the conference, we say, hey, that was the best one ever. But I personally believe for me that was the best one ever. It was something very special. Dr. Joel Beakey, dear Pastor Scott, did an exceptional job, served us so well. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of give a pastoral word to all of us, myself most certainly included, a word from God's Word, really seeking to keep those embers aflame and a time for us at Riverbend to receive the truth we heard and then to ask ourselves a very important question, how then shall we live? I'm going to sum up the sermons for the weekend if you're sitting there saying, well, I haven't heard them, so I don't know how I should live. I'm going to sum those up for you because all of us weren't all present, haven't dialed into the messages yet. I want to explain in a very brief nutshell what those messages were and then seek to shepherd you and my own heart to press on, to keep going, remain focused. Perhaps a little bit of the focus has already waned already. Perhaps you've felt the tug of the flesh already. We must keep living crucified to the world. This will be more of a thematic sermon, like I gave last Lord's Day at Impact. And some people really enjoy thematic, theme, topical sermons, and some people like sequential exposition, but I want you to know we should really like them both. God in His wisdom calls for regular, from Sunday to Sunday, consistent, sequential exposition of God's Word. And preaching from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, we kind of just plod along. Conference preaching is very exciting and different, but as we try and do together, mix it up a little bit as we step out of John on occasion, it's good to give us some variety. And so in light of the conference... And in light of the effect and the impact, pun most assuredly intended, I want us to consider this morning three ways to answer that important question. Post-impact, how then shall we live as a church? 
as a people, you and me, how should we then live? So in a very brief nutshell, the brief of of nutshells in fact, but to serve us here this morning, let me remind you or even inform you of those messages. Scott Artavanus, he gave us a resounding call to be in the Word of God, a resounding call to be in the Word of God, to not neglect the key instrument God has given us to grow but to be in it and to be saturated in it daily. I bet if you notice this week, maybe you've began to drift back into old thinking patterns and old patterns of the heart and attitude, I bet you've not been in the Word. I bet that's the case because I know that's true of me and if it's true of me, it's true of you because we are the same. Joel Beakey gave us a resounding call to identify worldliness in our lives and to pursue greater holiness in our lives with Christ as the one who meets all our needs in our lives. Christ and the Word. Christ and the Word to wean us from the world and we really need to be weaned from the world over and over. We need to be reminded over and over Because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, speaking of not that which brings life about, but speaking about that which the possessions we have in life, thinking that they make us grand and glorious and happy. No, no, no. What we look at, what we see, and what we desire is not from the Father. And so, I want us to press in today. We always come to church wanting to hear good news, and we'll hear good news, but we also come to church receiving the instructions and exhortations from our Heavenly Father who loves us so much. And so to be crucified to the world. You remember when I ended the conference on Monday afternoon, for those of you who were here, I took you to Galatians 6.14, you don't have to turn there, and I said there that that is a statement of fact. We're not We're not hoping to be crucified to the world. We are crucified to the world. That is a statement of reality for the believer. And what I want us to press on into is that if we are, as a statement of reality, crucified to this world, then we ought be getting closer to Christ. And as we get closer to Christ, we will get closer to each other. As we no longer neglect the Word of God, as we seek to identify worldliness in our lives and then lay it aside with holy living, that's how we get closer to Christ and we get closer to one another. Because if we're crucified to that world out there, we ought to be very close to Christ who has crucified us from that world and close to one another because we're united to Him and we're all brothers and sisters. And so that's what I want to do this morning as your pastor. I want us to do this. It's important for us to do this. Life is too short to just play games. Life is too short not to hear what we heard and then just drift off. Simon, did you know at all what I was going to preach on this morning? No idea. The passage you read from Hebrews, I was sitting there going, this is just incredible. Verse 1, pay closer attention to what you have heard so that you do not drift away from it. 
You know, the Lord's Day is not so much us coming and singing, as grand and glorious and as important as that is, and worshipping Him. You've heard me say this before. The most stellar, ultimate thing about the Lord's Day is God speaks to us. And He speaks in His sovereign will, in His sovereign timing. It never surprises me. And so the first way, if you're taking notes, we ought to now live is number one, in demonstrable commitment. Demonstrable commitment. I originally had the word genuine instead of the word demonstrable. We we don't tend to use that word much, but it presses in a little more than simply just genuine. If I said genuine commitment, yeah, okay. No, demonstrable commitment. What is that? I, I can still recall when Lisa and I moved over to California to the Master's Seminary, my first ever class the professor said the word demonstrative. In Australia, and I think here in New Zealand, we pronounce it demonstrative. Although there was some debate in the office this weekend as to how it's spoken of here in New Zealand, but you begin to understand the meaning of demonstrable when we hear demonstrative or demonstrative. It means that to make something apparent, to make something evident, to demonstrate something. And so what we need to do now is to excel in various aspects of our commitment, of our commitment. So as to ensure that our commitment to the Lord is demonstrable, it is apparent and evident. And so I want you to turn with me to Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, as we begin, please. As we begin to consider the first of three ways we should now live. Numbers chapter 11. The the people of Israel have obviously been under harsh oppression in Egypt. And now they're out wandering in the wilderness. And they are complaining. Complaining. Look at verse 1. Now, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of Yahweh. And when Yahweh heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Look at verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and again. Who will give us meat to eat? Moses. Then we see in verse 10, he's upset with God too. Look at verse 10. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. And Moses was displeased. God in his grace sends his spirit to fall upon 70 elders and to help Moses so he didn't have to do it all alone. As you read on, God gives the people so much meat. He's not happy with them. You even read there that he says, I'm going to give you so much meat up to your nostrils. He's not happy with them because he's already blessed them with so much. 
and they keep on complaining. Verse 19 now. You shall eat not one day, nor two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you and have wept before Him saying, look at this, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why did we ever leave? The meat comes. Quail it was. And look at verse 33 now. Verse 33 says, While the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh struck the people with a very severe plague. God does not want us to complain. Joel was very accurate for those of you that were here and those of you who weren't here. Joel Beakey said to us, he urged us not to complain, not even about the weather. I've had checks in my spirit all week. We need those. God does not want us to be complaining children. And then in the beginning of chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam now begin to murmur and complain too. Look at verse 9 of chapter 12. So the anger of Yahweh burned against them. And then what it says, and he departed. Then in chapter 13, as God is moving to fulfill his covenant promise, he requests that Moses sends a group of men to spy out the promised land. And one of those men is named Caleb. Caleb. Look at verse 6. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So the spies go out, they look at the land as to whether it had any trees and what the fruit was. They brought back some vines and grapes and the like. And they come back, look at verse 27 of chapter 13. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And by the way, Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Look at verse 31. The men who had gone up with him said, this is their report, we are not able to go against the people for they are too strong for us. They are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report, verse 32, a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone in spying out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There was also Nephilim there, and we became like grasshoppers in their sight. And so it's a bad report. But now look at verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it because we will surely overcome it. Look at verse 14. Sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. Caleb says that. Now look at what they say. 
all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried and the people wept that night. The sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And so they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of the assembly of the congregation of all the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel. This is what Caleb was saying. The land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If Yahweh is pleased with us, then He'll bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Do not rebel against Yahweh and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Look at verse 10. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of the meeting to all the sons of Israel. And it goes on. But look at verse 11. Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their sight. You know, Moses, he then goes on to pray for God to have mercy. God then actually has mercy. Reminding us that prayer is an instrument to unearthing God's will. His decretive ultimate will. God is displeased indeed with the people. He'll keep His promise to them to enter the land, but the vast majority of them will not enter and they'll die instead. And here now is the point. Because here now is the man. Look at verse 24 of Numbers 14. In light of all of that, But my servant, Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. There it is. Caleb. God tells us there is something different about Caleb. Well, two things actually mark Caleb. Number one, he has a different spirit. And number two, he fully followed God. What's meant by different spirit? Well, it's kind of twofold what's meant there. Caleb was not in possession of the same despairing, complaining, ungrateful heart which God grieves over and calls a rebellious heart. Caleb did not have the doubting, damaged heart that was bleak and negative and down like the people around him. That's what's meant there. He had a different spirit in him. And secondly, what's meant here is that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You cannot follow God fully without the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, here and other places tell us in the Old Testament, the saints were regenerate just like we are in the New Covenant, and they were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He has a different spirit. 
He was marked as one who was fully committed to God. I want you to flick ahead to Numbers 32 now. Numbers 32, and when you get there, look at verse 6. Numbers 32, verse 6, Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now, while, why, what, now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which Yahweh has given them? Verse 8, this is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, this is speaking of the spies, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which Yahweh had given them. So Yahweh's anger burned in that day and he swore saying, none of the men, listen to this, who came from Egypt from 20 years old upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Look at this, for they did not follow me fully except Caleb and obviously Joshua. There was a commitment in Caleb and Joshua, of course. Listen carefully as I read Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 35 and 36 for you, which says this, None of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb. He shall see it, and to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot. Listen to this, because he has followed Yahweh, what? Fully. Listen to Joshua chapter 14, verse 7 onward. And please note, these are Caleb's words in Joshua here. Caleb says this, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, listen to this, my brothers who went with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed Yahweh my God, what? Fully. I am still as strong as I was on the day Moses sent me. And he's 84 years old when he's saying this. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. Therefore... Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb to this day. Why? Because he followed Yahweh, God of Israel, fully. God wants us to know something, right? God wants us to hear something. And so Caleb's different. He is full of God and he is fully God's. He has a demonstrable commitment to God. And so how do we lay hold of that different spirit that is fully committed to God. How is it said of us that that person there, they are fully committed to God? Well, I'd say this. First of all, we must receive those exhortations, those commands from God in His Word as something to obey right now. Right now. What do we say to our kids? Oh man, we never nail it, but we say, what do we say to them? Delayed obedience is disobedience. We have to obey right now. Any delay is sinful disobedience. 
We have to obey exhortations like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 that says this, Just as He who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And so we must have a commitment to holiness. I feel the pull away from that, but feel the pull towards it. In our words, in our actions, in our thoughts. Scott preached from Psalm 19 on the Word of God, didn't he? You know, the final verses of that psalm say, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing or acceptable in your sight. My what? My rock and my redeemer. And so the way to being fully committed to God is to be holy. And to be holy is to have the words we speak and the heart's desire be pleasing in God's sight. And to do that, we need the word of God. So we have to be committed to the word of God. And so commit to reading more of the Word of God than you do. I'm trying to do that. Ask me and I'll ask you. Let's each ask each other. Are you in the Word of God? I realize doing that as Anzacs is culturally counter for sure, but it's not counter Caleb, is it? It's not counter Caleb. He's different. I want to live fully committed to God. So first, commitment to the Word of God produces holiness, us, holiness in us as we lay hold of the Scripture and we make time to let God speak to us. I think we ignore God too much. Second, another way to be fully committed to God like Caleb is to be committed to the Gospel. You say, how can we be committed to the Gospel? Well, in the adoration of it the application of it, and the proclamation of it. That's how. Nothing propels us into deeper, demonstrable commitment like that of meditating upon the gospel. The gospel. Show me someone lacking commitment and living fully for God, and I will show you someone not preaching the gospel to themselves daily and moment by moment and thinking upon how greatly they have sinned and yet been saved from that sin by the precious Lord Jesus. An application of the, of the gospel is to remind yourself of the love and mercy of God to you. Each and every day. Each and every day in the person of Christ. Wake up in the morning. My flesh is going to drag me in wrong ways of thinking Lord, thanks for being merciful to me, even in the sin, sin I'll commit today, when I'll sin against my spouse, my children, my friends, my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Please help me, Lord. First thing in the morning, I'm a great sinner, but I have been powerfully saved by a greater Savior. Thank you so much. Because Jesus loved me, and He gave Himself for me. But, but I have so many other commitments, you're burdening me with more. You and I cannot afford to sidestep or shirk being fully caught up in the gospel. Think upon it, adore it. And then we have to start sharing it. A demonstrable commitment to the Lord is the sharing of the gospel. Motivated not by some 
duty but delight in that we have received the eternal life, peace with God. So Caleb was different. He was fully for God. I want you to know he was blessed of God as a result of giving God his all. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. You fully commit to God and God will bless you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then what? All these things will be added unto you, said Jesus. Caleb was different. Anything less than being fully for God is subpar, it is sour, it is insufficient. Christ is worthy, is he not, of a new found. Mark this down. Christ is worthy, is he not, of this morning, a new found, spirit-wrought commitment from you and I. Hello? You awake? Christ is worthy, is he not? He is, of a newfound commitment. And then when we fail on Monday, we make a Monday morning, we make a newfound commitment on Monday afternoon, and so on and so forth. Fully devoted to God. We've received such grace and such love, and all the promises of God are ours in Christ Jesus. And so may we seriously and soberly, yet gladly, receive the exhortations in God's word and obey them now. Exhortations like 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, which says this, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know, my spirit, your spirit, our spirit can become too lax toward God. Too lax. That's what I loved about Joel and Scott. Working by the Spirit of God. God's kindness expressed to us. The powerful preaching. It, it, it is compelling us to bring holiness in our life. Our Christianity can just become so much just about going through the motions for God. We need the Caleb spirit. That different spirit being fully committed in our life at home. And in this local church. And so how then shall we live? Since we are crucified to the world. As we heard at Impact. Number one. In a demonstrable apparent commitment. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in his strength that mightily works within us. Number two. If you're taking notes. Second way we live is number two. In demonstrable humility. Humility. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 now. The church at Philippi was doing well. It was doing well. Uh, the speakers and people from all around the country, Matthew, Riverbend's doing well. It's doing well. We are, we're doing well. Philippi was a good church. Riverbend's a good church. Philippi had issues. We have issues. Every church does. The Apostle Paul really wanted the church at Philippi to grow in humility. It was an area that they were struggling in. They were strong and faithful, and yet a lack of humility was prevalent. We have to be aware of that kind of thing too. 
We have to be so aware of that because our own hearts and our own flesh so amazingly deceive us. We can think that we're well. We can think that we're doing well. We can justify and defend ourselves very well. Often takes someone else to say, hey, no, no, no. That hurts. But it's true. I want you to know God in His wisdom, instead of just saying to us, be more humble. Through the pen of the Apostle Paul, he presents to the church at Philippi and Riverbend, Christ. And the cross. And theology. You got your Bibles open at Philippians 2, you may be able to see verse 2 of Philippians 4. If you can't turn there, but look at verse 2 of Philippians 4. This is kind of an example of some of the issues that the Philippians were having. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Look at the very next verse. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And so here is what we need to understand. When Paul writes concerning those two ladies in verse 2, he has much more than just those two ladies in mind. He is thinking of the entire Philippian church as a whole. And God in His Word is speaking to every church in every place, including ours. And so we're given this letter here that we would do better in humility. Humility. And the way God compels us is not through brute force, but through theology. A drill sergeant will yell at you to get something done. But God in His Word will compel you to work something inside of you. And that's what he does here via the pen of the Apostle Paul. And the most targeted and the most specific way this begging and pleading and compelling for humility is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Look at verse 1 of Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. In order to be intent and one purpose, we have to just go looking for encouragement, looking for consolations of love, looking for fellowship of the Spirit, looking for affection and compassion, and then we make God's joy complete by being one. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every name knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the presentation of who Jesus is and what Jesus does that is the doctrine to drive our devotion to deeper humility. And so as to demonstrate a genuine humility, God takes us to Christ and the cross. He doesn't first give us a law to obey. He gives us Christ and the cross. And from the foot of the cross and with Christ, we then receive this strong call to humility. And the first thing to see is what Paul says about Jesus. He says there, look there, in verse 6, he existed in the form of God. Form of God. Two words I want to give you here, the word matter, matter, which means material, and the word form, which means the distinguishing characteristics of an object. Everything's made up of something, right? And everything possesses distinct contours and shapes. A few years ago, we purchased antique baseball bats at a market in Los Angeles. Still have those. Antique baseball bats are made of wood. That's the matter, wood. And it has a distinct characteristic, a shape and contour. That's its form. Its matter and its form are what distinguishes it from a fishing rod. It's altogether different. And so what Paul writes, or intends when he writes, that Jesus is in the form of God, I want you to know he's not saying that Jesus was like God. He is saying that Jesus is the very essence of God. He is the very distinct character of God displayed and revealed. He is God of God to us, fully and truly God. That's the first thing we see. The next thing we see is that little phrase next to that where it says, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's to say that Jesus, while always being the eternal Son of God, Jesus did not assume the role of the Son at his incarnation. He was forever the Son. He's never been anything but the Son. And since he is eternally God the Son, the idea is that he did not counted a prize or a trophy to hold on to being God since he was already God. That's what's meant there. But what he did do at his incarnation was, verse 7, look, he emptied himself. Now, this is where the push for humility now comes. This is what we need to see. But I need to say this first. Too often, too regularly, the idea that is believed here and the idea that is taught here is that Jesus emptied himself, meaning he laid aside his divine attributes. You hear people say that. That when he came into the world, he emptied himself of all but love. People sing that. 
that in his incarnation, he put his divine attributes to the side. Well, both the song and the theology are not correct. That is not correct. We need to grasp this accurately because it aids us immensely in the pursuit of humility, to have demonstrable humility in our lives. You see, if Jesus laid aside his divine attributes, then the Trinity breaks. The Trinity breaks. And God, who is unchanging, changes. That doesn't happen. The way to understand this text, as God intends us to grasp it, is to see Jesus did not empty himself of anything. Jesus did not empty himself of anything. Jesus emptied himself, get this, of his actual self. Let me explain. He didn't empty himself of anything. He emptied himself of his actual self. He remained the eternal son in possession of all divinity and all the attributes. And in the taking on of a human nature, he, as God, emptied himself of himself, meaning he renounced his own self. He is, as the New King James and the King James rightly put it, he made himself of no reputation. That's what's being taught there. He, he didn't remove his divinity. That's, that's, that's just crazy talk. He kept his divinity, but he renounced himself. He made himself of no reputation when he took on a human nature. The very God of God made himself a man, a lowly man of no reputation, still possessing all divinity, yet emptying himself of himself, making himself of no reputation and making himself a what? A servant, a servant, a lowly, minded, humble, obedient servant. Here's something to mark down. Jesus always existed as the eternal son with the father and the spirit. Yet, when he took on a human nature at his incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas, he lived in submission to the Father and he grew in obedience. He, he humbled himself in that in his humanity, he stepped down into our world, he submitted to the Father's will, he took that cross and he wore that crown of thorns in all humility for us. Therefore, how much of a stench is a lack of humility in those for whom he lived and died. A lack of humility in you and me is a stench. It's been well said that the master became the slave. And the one who rightly issues the commands becomes the one who subjected himself to obeying the commands. That is how God in His wisdom wants us to lay hold of a demonstrable humility. He wants us to come face to face with a self-renunciation. You want to say, what's the takeaway from Philippians 2? Self-renunciation. That's what it is. Self-renunciation. The ultimate act of all humiliation was to hang 
on a cross like a dirty, rotten, scumbag criminal. And Jesus, who was none of those things, hung upon that cross. Because he renounced himself of himself. And that is humility. Renunciation of our self. Think about the conflicts you get into with your spouse. With your co-workers. With a fellow church member. Anywhere. It's because self is front and center. Think about the words that you and I say to defend ourselves. To justify ourselves. Even when someone comes along and says, Matthew, you're not thinking right about that. Self is front and center. Do you know that John Calvin, in his writings, he goes for the jugular in a very pastoral way in the realm of, yeah, you can do those things, (laughs) in the serving of the local church, for us serving in, in our local church by emphasizing the necessity of denying self, renunciating self. We're going through this at the moment as a home group. God gives us gifts to use in the church. And Calvin really, at one point in chapter 2, he just nails down that the use of the gifts that God has given us in the church is not for the safeguarding of our own self, but for the blessing of others. And so when we're in some ministry somewhere in the church and a difficult person arises or a difficult person is there, we don't just throw the toys out of the cot and leave that particular ministry, but instead we deny ourselves and press on for the benefit of others. Calvin says, there's, it's amazing, there's virtues that God gives you and He uses moments like that, difficult people, to bring out those virtues in you. Have you thought about that before? It's mind-blowing. God has given you virtues, but how He wants those virtues to be on display is through suffering and trial. Don't get upset with me, you get upset with Calvin. But it's true what he's saying. To deny self is to be willing to suffer humiliation and hurt so as to bless others. I'm not exactly sure where God wants you to begin to demonstrate more humility in your life and service to the Lord Jesus, but I know that He does. Because this is a call to all of us to renounce ourselves. The world seeks to be adorned with the necklace of pride. And we've been crucified to the world. Do you have issues with someone? Do you have conflict? Do you have a critical spirit? Do you justify yourself? Do you, have, do you not serve this church as a servant? Well, all of that, we must all pause and consider that we're not renouncing self. That we know the gospel, we're not living in light of the gospel. That we love the Lord Jesus and we rejoice that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, but we're not living in light of the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us because we're not renouncing our self. We are not fully committed to God and we are not fully committed to humility. Because the amazing thing is, is when you begin to acknowledge that, you'll begin to move and make movements towards greater commitment and greater humility. But if you just let it pass you by, there'll be no commitment and no humility. 
And we need to always remember this, and man, I'm learning this. It's not so much others that are the problem. It's you and me. Coming back to the cross and to Christ who hung upon that cross is the place of self-renunciation. This is how we all must think. This is what we all must do. This is the beginning of living a demonstrable humility. And Jesus is worthy of us doing so. Our time is almost up and so very quickly. So as to live in light of being crucified to the world, we are to demonstrate a commitment. We are to demonstrate a humility. And third and final way we are to live is in demonstrable love. Demonstrable love. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. You know this passage very well. It's pretty quiet in here. I understand. I understand. But this is necessary for my heart and for yours. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not become, act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. So often this is read at weddings. That's okay to read it at weddings, but I can tell you it's got nothing to do with weddings. It has everything to do with the local church. Everything to do with the local church. Reminding us how we are to treat one another, to love one another. In fact, look at the final verse of 1 Corinthians 12, just above verse 1. I'll show you a more excellent way. Love is the more excellent way. Do you know that Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, you know this, but let it hit you again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In Colossians 3, verses 13 to 14, we read this. Bear with one another. Oh, how we need to bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You want a test to see how you are at loving as a demonstration? See how much you're working in your own heart and mind to bind things together in harmony. What helps us do that? Well, the very next verse in Colossians 3.15, it says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. 
Never underestimate the power of gratitude. And so to fuel and to fulfill this law of love in 1 Corinthians 13, we need to understand that it's found in the person of Christ because there was such commitment from Christ. There was such humility from Christ. There was such love from Christ. As we look to Christ and to study Him, we will live more crucified to this world and we'll be able to crucify the lusts of the flesh. You know, Richard Sibbs says this, Richard Sibbs from the 16th century put it best when he said this quote, the nearer we come to Christ, the better we are. You want to be better? I do. The nearer we come to Christ, the better we are. If you study each of those characteristics of 1 Corinthians 13 and love, each correlates directly to Jesus. (laughs) Listen to John chapter 1 verse, John chapter, 1 John chapter 2 verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way which he walked. Jesus walked in demonstrable commitment. Jesus walked in demonstrable humility, and Jesus most certainly walked in demonstrable love. How then shall we live? In very close step with our loving Savior in His Word every day. The very depths of service in this local church with commitment, humility, and love. Calvin said this, quote, Self-mortification, that is, self-renunciation, will only occur in us when we fulfill the sum of love's requirements, end quote. May we all love God more, love others more, not from duty. Lord, change us. Lord, change our affections for what is pleasing in your sight. Forgive us for being so easily distracted, so easily offended, for wandering away. Call us back to Christ. Give us grace to commit again, to be humble, and to fulfill the requirements of love. I want to close with a benediction. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, and all God's people said,